Bless you, church. Good morning. You doing well? Awesome. Hey, um, well, look, just, just sort of carrying on, um, variation on a theme of what I spoke about a few weeks ago. I was reading a New York Times article by a guy called Hal Nitzvietsky. And so for those adults who are here, uh, if you want some chocolate, count how many times I say Nitzvietsky during the sermon, okay? So this guy, Hal Nitzvietsky, Nitzvietsky, he reflected on, um, he, he wrote this article probably about 2008, reflecting on social media sites, particularly Facebook. And uh, he'd set up a Facebook account, and pretty quickly he'd accumulated 700 Facebook friends. And in his own words, he was absurdly proud of how many cyber pals, connections, acquaintances, and even strangers he'd managed to sign up. And so he found, though, that with his work commitments, with a two-year-old at home, and also the fact he liked his own company, that he didn't have as many in-the-flesh friends as he, as he once had at, at an earlier stage of his life. So he thought, I'm going to throw a party for my Facebook friends so that I, my virtual friends can become friends in reality. And so uh, he invited all 700 friends to a, a party that he was holding at a local bar. And they could respond either attending, maybe attending, or not attending. Have you noticed that on Facebook? I remember I was doing a wedding a few years ago, and a mate said to me, oh, are you going to the engagement party? I said, oh, I don't know anything about it. He said, it's tonight. I said, what? And it had been, the invite had gone out on Facebook. I just, don't, I just don't think that way. I want to respond, s'il vous plaît, sent in the mail. And then I get it, and I put it on the fridge door. And then my wife says, remember, this is coming up. And I go, yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't, I don't think in terms of social media invites. Yeah. So luckily I got there and went, yeah, yeah, I knew it was all on all the time, yeah. But here he is, he, he's, got, he, he's invited 700 people. 15 said, I'll definitely be attending. 60 said, maybe I'll be attending. So he thought, maybe 20 or so will turn up. So this is uh, what he says in his own words. He says, on the evening in question, I splashed on my tingly man perfume. I put on new pants and a favorite shirt. Brimming with optimism, I headed over to the neighborhood watering hole and waited, and waited, and waited. Eventually, one person showed up, and the woman who turned up, he didn't even know her. She was like a friend of a friend. So they made this awkward conversation for about 20 minutes. Oh, so, yeah, what did you do? Oh, okay. And then she left. So he hung around till about midnight, and um, yeah, everyone go, oh, yeah. You don't mean it, don't do that, it's terrible. It's just patronising. No. <laughs> so he waited until midnight, no one else showed up. So he ordered a beer and uh, found himself sliding into self-pity. And this is how he finishes the article with these words. 700 friends and I was drinking alone. I find it fascinating how, how social media and the like has impacted our culture in terms of belonging. You know, we've got a generation that has grown up with it you know, and devices and the like. It's absolutely fascinating. Last year, I was reading in the Herald about an international survey that came up uh, in 2015. And it said that 17.3% of our Kiwi 15-year-olds, okay, that's one in six of our Kiwi 15-year-olds on weekdays, that's school nights, are, on, uh, are online at least six hours on a workday on a weekday, on a school day, at least six hours a day. 
Now, I think with all of this stuff, you know, and I, I talked about it a bit a while ago, but with, with, with the impact of, of social media and, and the like, I think what it means is we live in a world where we're always sharing, where we're always communicating, but seldom we're having real conversations or, or actual real genuine connections. Um, MIT professor Sherry Turkle sees connecting online as connecting in sips, you know, just a sip. That it's like, it's like picking up bits of information or saying, I'm thinking about you. That, that, that's really good. But connecting in sips doesn't work as well when it comes to understanding and knowing each other. Uh, Turkle believes we expect more from technology and less from one another, and we seem increasingly drawn to technologies that, I like this, provide the illusion of companionship without the demands of relationship. Because relationships are messy. You've got to get over raru-raru. So I don't know how to translate that. It's just a great word, raru-raru. All the issues and the stuff that gets between. When, when real people mix in real life, there's, there's issues. And you've got to overcome that with love. You've got to, you've got to, de- you've got to deal with it somehow. That's life. Uh, Simon Sarnik, uh, contemporary writer and author, he expresses his concern for the millennial generation and their addiction to devices um, and their lack of deep, meaningful relationships. This is what he says. Um, he notes that when significant stress begins to show in the lives of millennials, they're not turning to a person, but they're turning to a device. They're turning to social media. They're turning to these things which offer temporary relief because they lack the coping mechanisms and deep relationships that can help them through such times. You know, this is where I think the Māori value, kanuhi ki te kanuhi, face-to-face, is actually a human value. There's something that can only take place when we're together in person. You know? It's kanuhi, or kanuhi ikitia is another phrase. A face seen. I see you. You're there. You've, you've made the effort to turn up and be present in my suffering or in my celebrating or in my life, and it means something. You don't even need to say anything because I see your face. You know, there's something about doing life together. The last couple of hundred years, it's just rapid philosophical, cultural, technological changes in society have brought about some amazing innovations and changes. I like social media, and I think there's a way in which we can use it that's fantastic. I really do but I also believe that it has left us disconnected and lonelier than ever before. That's part of our life today. Uh, People today, they're trying to find meaning in their existence, but they're often struggling with doubt and confusion. They try to find friendships, but their hearts are often disappointed and their souls walk away wounded. Craving companionship, they find that they can't shake a sense of loneliness, so they keep busy. Seeking assurance, they're racked with self-doubt and questions. And I think New Zealand as a culture is quite an insecure culture. As a culture, we, you, know, we, that, that, you know, that false humility that we have at times reflects an insecurity. Oh, nah, yeah, nah, you know? And that's reflected in, in some of the historical literature. Aching for safety they find themselves filled with insecurity and worry, people today. And so people are weary. They're lost in darkness with with, with little true peace. Yet they keep trudging onward day after day, hoping to find solace in something that will distract them 
from the unfulfillment in their lives. Maybe a screen, uh, maybe a dalliance or a, a flirtation or a drink or whatever it is. Uh, a social event tonight, that'll make it worth it if I just get through the day. And when these fail, author Tim Savage puts it this way, these people secretly yearn that someone in the darkness around them might provide some light. Someone who can draw their attention to something beautiful, something substantial, something transcendent, anything that might, dis- might, might banish despair and ignite hope. And, and we believe that hope in this world isn't lost. Savage puts it this way. He says, there is something that proclaims just such a deliverance, that proclaims in the midst of the darkness and the hopelessness that there is hope, that there is meaning, and that is the body of Christ. Here's how Savage puts it. To catch a glimpse of the local church, the local church in action, whose members interact lovingly with each other, pouring out their God-given gifts into each other's lives, showcasing in their relentless self-sacrifice the love of Jesus Christ himself. To see the church in action is to see what society lacks, a love without which souls wither and die, a love for which all people, whether they know it or not, passionately crave. It is the love found exclusively in the local church. Savage goes on to say this, There are no human words to capture the strategic importance of this love. The local church and its love represent the only sure antidote to a postmodern world mired in sin and despair. Now, when I spoke about the darkness and the lack of connection and the despair in this world, to speak of the body of Christ and the local church as the answer might have been underwhelming for you. Oh, really? Oh. We all know Jesus is the answer, but he has called a group of people together to be salt and light to the world. That, that, that's where I'm coming from. And you, you might find it underwhelming. You might go, really, these fellas? <laughs> ah, but I know some of them, you know. <laughs> oh. And I want to acknowledge that because there might be that, oh, within us. But this, this is... This is what we are. One of the things I've learned about the gospel is that I've got to walk in what God says, not what the world says of me. And God says, well, God, God, God's word says, you are salt, you are light. You know, a city on a hill. Not a fella on a hill with a torch. Not a woman on a hill with a candle, but a city. That's, that's a group of people living together where there's life, and when I'm lost in the darkness and I see that off in the distance, there's a bit of hope and something to head towards. There's a city on a hill, and that's what, that's what God says, and so that's what I work towards, even though I know often I fall short of, the, of that reality, that's what my Lord has called for. So I endeavor to walk in that, Okay? And so this is the, the antidote to sin and despair. The church that Christ is building out of ordinary, everyday people like you and me. Like you and me. Here's this wonder, the wonderful words of Jesus, uh, his command. Very clear. A command from Jesus. Let me give you a new command. 
love one another. In the same way I loved you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples. Um, that all men will know that you are my disciples. That all those who aren't one of us will know that you follow me when they see the love you have for each other. This is absolutely key and fundamental to our mission and witness in the world. New Testament scholar Tom Wright describes the church as a single multi-ethnic family promised by the creator God to Abraham. You know, way back in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. And all ethnos and all families on earth will be blessed through you. And we see that when we see that uh, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are worshiping God at the end of days. The early Christians did their best to live as an extended family, caring for each other in the way that in that world, extended families did. They called each other brother and sister, and they meant it. They meant it. Remember when I spoke about um, Philemon, and I talked about the language in that letter of father, son, Brother, sister, they had, the Spirit had formed a new family in that ancient Greco-Roman world. Here's the thing. The New Testament picture of the church as a family flies in the face of our individualistic cultural orientation. I don't, I really, you know, they, they say a fish doesn't understand wet. You know, it's just part of its world. And I have had to work to try and understand how the culture that I live in and the worldview that I've grown up in has affected me. Consumerism, individualism, the whole idea. See, see for, for the bulk of the world's history, people have lived as part of a tribe or a larger group, whether that's Europe, Africa, wherever, Africa, through the Americas, through Asia, there's been a sense of something bigger. I belong, therefore I am. But in the last couple of hundred years in the West, individualism has come in and really impacted how we do things. Over the last 50 years, while society has been growing more and more prosperous and individualistic, our social connections have been dissolving. Emily Esfani Smith from The Atlantic describes the price for our social disconnection. Have a listen to this. We volunteer less. Now, I know that because I can compare to my parents' time and growing up and the like. And also, have a look, you know, not only in terms of church attendance over the last 50, 60 years, but... Um, Numbers in rugby clubs, numbers in sports clubs, volunteers dropping because society doesn't belong the way it once did. So we volunteer less. We entertain guests at our homes less often. And we have fewer and fewer close friends with whom we'd share the intimate details of our lives. I'm a believer that there's got to be someone in your life who knows everything that's going on. I believe that. I for me to live with integrity, there's got to be someone who knows what's going on in here. Not the mask, not the happy happy, but the dinkum, the, the, the real, the genuine. We've got to be able to do that. But we have that less and less. We're denying our social nature and paying a price for it. Over the same period of time that social isolation has increased, our level of happiness has decreased, has gone down, while rates of suicide and depression have multiplied. Now, by contrast, I was um, looking at a man called John Varnier, who was the founder of the Large Community, uh, where people with developmental disabilities live with others who cared for them. He created families where those with disabilities would be accepted and loved. 
And I heard Varnier say these words in a 1966 documentary, and I found them incredibly moving. Here's what he says. He says, the important thing is to feel that somebody loves you, and that if you're not there, you're missed. And that if one day, as we all are, we're called to die, then somebody will weep for you because you belong. Because you've, you, 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 because you've lived with people in the mess of the day today that they've actually gotten to know you. You've managed to get upset and work through it and get closer and actually forge some bonds that actually mean something rather than, you know, hey, we're mates and, oh, I don't like that. Okay, cool, I'll come over here. And I'll, no, no, I'm a fan. No. You actually go deeper and actually connect get to know people, and get to be known. Remember Pastor Sheridan saying years ago, intimacy? Into me, you see. That ability to be seen and accepted and loved. I reckon most people are scared of that. But we'd never say it because you can't admit to being afraid. In our world today, we crave connectedness. We crave, it's a deep human need to belong, to be accepted, we all long for it. Amen? And I want to look at the early church in Acts. I was reading a book by a guy called Joseph Hellerman called uh, When the Church Was a Family. And he looks at the, the nature of the early communities of, of the very early church and, and how they grew from a very small Jewish sectarian group to basically fill the Roman Empire of the time. And so it gets us to look at Acts 4. 33, which is another great description of the church, this passage. So remember, we've looked at Acts 2 a while ago, where we see that they committed themselves or dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship. You know, just just wonderful picture of the community that the Spirit was building in that ancient time. And here in Acts 4.33, this is what we read. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Fantastic. You know, and as Pentecostal and charismatic Christians, the power of God is something that, that, that's phenomenal. It's, it's part of knowing the living presence of God with us today. The, the power of the miraculous, the power to, to, to drive away the darkness, the power to be able to overcome and live a life of victory and triumph. And who's experienced that with God in their lives? their triumphant ability to overcome and live a life of overcoming. And it's wonderful. And it was a much-needed corrective to the larger Christian tradition. But Hallerman says, I want you to look at the verses either side of this passage because we could maybe miss the point of what's going on here. He says, go back to verse 31. All the believers were one in heart, in one heart, one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the one who overcame death and paved a way for us to, enter, um, to follow with him to the Father and to bring heaven to earth, overcoming death, overcoming sin for us. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Power, grace, God's Grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, 
and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now have a look at what Luke's comments about power and grace that marked the church of Jerusalem. A social solidarity. A sharing of resources. I love the concept of manakitanga that's seen here, which is more than hospitality, but caring for the mana of another. Mana enhancing life. Caring for... It's more than being nice. It's seeing Christ in the other and loving with His love. And dying to self and, oh, God, there's so much of myself that needs to die so that he can, he can have his way in me. I, I find that um, amazing to look at. So the power and the grace can certainly be seen in the fact that this community loved one another. Think about it. Ancient Greco-Roman world, Jew and Gentile and all the ethnic groups that never mixed together, but the power and the grace that brought them together so they could be a whānau who loved one another. Aristocrats, lords, slaves, free men, the power that allowed them to see one another as equals and family. Male and female and children who were seen as class citizens suddenly seen as people created in the image of God and valuable. That's power. That's power. You know, if you've followed the news recently, Taika Waititi has made comments about a racist New Zealand, and a lot of people have disagreed with him and made quite racist comments. How dare you say we're racist? But it's a human thing that's gone on for Generations and generations, a fear of people who are different. A demonization of those who are different to, to help solidarity for our group will we'll, we'll make you guys the other. And he's just named it. And people don't like it. But what I love about the gospel is it breaks all of those barriers down to bring in people from, from all around the world into a family. And, and it goes deeper than our behavior. It actually gets into our hearts and starts to change what's going on in here. Because I don't know about you, but I had some thinking that needed to go over the years. Probably still do, and in time you'll highlight it. But there's, there's changes that need to be made if I'm going to be able to be a part of his family in the way that he wants me to be. This is how the early church were viewed by outsiders. I want to show you some examples of how the church were viewed, because remember, you know, when Constantine became emperor in the 4th century, early 4th century, suddenly Christianity became the religion of the, the empire. But prior to that, they were a minority. They were a little sea of faith in a, in a world of paganism. Let me show you some of the ways in which they were seen. Here's a guy, Lucian of Somosata. He, was a, uh, he wrote a satire about a guy, Perigonus, and Perigonus was a cynic philosopher who cruised around and he'd abuse the, the hospitality of Christians because they'd just take you in and feed you. And he'd say whatever he, he had to in order to get a feed. And so Lucian mocked him in this writing. But one of the things that comes through that he observed was their first lawgiver, that is Jesus, persuaded them that they're all brothers of one another. <gasps> Which in that world was crazy. Jew and Gentile, 
slaves and free men. They're all brothers and sisters. And, he, and that was one of the things for him coming in. He went, gee, they'll treat each other like brothers. Um, Julian, the, the apostate, he was a uh, Roman emperor who tried to return the worship to the old pagan gods. And he had an issue because he was trying to uh, turn the empire away from Christianity. But Christians were giving uh, his side a really bad name because we see here the impious Galileans, that's, that's the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well. Women Christians, being kind to everybody. Just the way, and so he had to try and get funding out to the pagan priests to try and start looking after their own people because the reputation of Christians was phenomenal. And then Tertullian, who was an early church father, said that uh, when the pagan world looked in at the church, they said, see how they love one another. This is the early church. Think of that. Gentile and Jew, slave and free, rich and poor, living as family, watching out for each other, having each other's back. And the world looking in just went, what? You know, it reminds me of uh, a testimony of the early Pentecostals at Azusa Street, uh, which was run. You had African Americans and white people and Latinos all worshipping together, men and women in leadership together which was quite different, and a guy called Frank Bartleman said, the color line was washed away in the blood. That's part of our Pentecostal heritage that I absolutely love looking back at that. This is, this is what the gospel does when it takes root. Let's recall Jesus' words. Let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples. This is how the world will know that you're my people. They'll see your love. In Hellerman's view, the early church took their cultural view of the group first, whānau-type thinking, and they applied it to the church, living together like Mediterranean brothers and sisters. And uh, listen to this. Hellerman says this. The early Christians turned the world upside down. When the church was a family church was on fire. I've taught theology and biblical studies for over 20 years now, since I was eight. I can't help it, sorry, Ray. I had to do it since I was eight. I was a prodigy. I was a prodigious. Um, <laughs> but when I, when, I, when, I, when I speak to students, uh, over that time, teach about the doctrine of adoption, and when I say that we've been adopted into God's family, I often ask people, you know, so we've received the spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. We've become children in the family of God, brothers and sisters. I ask the students, do you think of the people in your local church as brothers and sisters? And invariably the answer has been no, not really. Unless the students have come from a Polynesian background or possibly an African background, then They've had a cultural basis for that sort of thinking. I then asked them to reflect how an added appreciation of this idea would be helpful for the church and how could we encourage a greater appreciation of this idea. 
that we're not merely co-workers. We're not card-carrying members of a club or a group. We're not just consuming attendees, holding up a scorecard at the back. Uh, singing was all right, I'll give it a four. Speaking was all right, went too long, give it a two. Because we're consumers, part of our culture. And I'll talk about that next week versus a family perspective. But rather, we're brothers and sisters. So again, it doesn't matter what you, how you feel about that. It's what he says. So I endeavor to walk according to that. So do you think that those, you know, brothers and sisters, family with the same father, whose only begotten son, our tuakana, is Lord and Savior, bound together by the one true spirit. So do you think of those around you as brothers and sisters? If not, you know, ask yourself why not. What barriers, historical, cultural, maybe social, personal, are there to stop you from embracing that truth? What could you do to help encourage a greater appreciation of this truth? His command, love one another. That's how everyone will know that you're my disciples when they see your love for one another. Our theme this year is belonging, and this month we're speaking about mission. And my point this morning is quite simply this. Yes, we witness as individuals. Come and hear Daz next, next week, eh? Next week. You know, phenomenal calling on his life. We're called to witness and evangelize as individuals, absolutely. But my point this morning to support that is that God's plan for us is as a community of his children, loving one another, that's part of our witness to the world. That's part of our witness to the world. Loving one another, living, doing life together, an incredible witness for Jesus. And our corporate life together is a key part of outreach and mission. See how they love one another. You know, and, and we have such a rich tradition uh, in missions. Wonderful Sally hearing you share, um, not only today, but, 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 um, but in the past too, um, your heart in terms of missions. And I, th I think of part of, is your feet on? Can I come? Oh, <laughs> KFC. Um, sorry, sorry, I get tired and my mind starts to wander. Sorry, it's been a long morning. Um, but I, yeah, I but I, I think of um, I think of our missions tradition. Gladys Aylward in China, phenomenal woman, and in 1938 uh, leads a hundred children, some of them infants, most of them aged six to eight, on a hundred mile trek in war torn China to get them to a place of safety. And and those people remember a woman who loved them. And she created a place and a community of love. And I read about um, our early missionaries, and I read about uh, Henry Williams, for example. Uh, Henry Williams, actually, the, both, both of the Williams brothers were, were amazing figures. But I read about Henry Williams, reading here from um, Keith Newman's book. And there was a memorial um, set up 
for the Reverend Henry Williams. And the Reverend Topaki spoke at this commemoration. And he said, Think of the wickedness of our island. The exceeding heavy stone which weighed us down was cannibalism, but that did not deter him. He forsook his own country and people, parents and relatives. He arrived here in 1823. He landed at Paihia, built his first fortress, the church standing before you, and it was in that fortress that he forged the weapons of war wherewith he overthrew the strongholds of the earth. And they marveled at this man who left behind family and friends and came and lived among them for decades because he loved them and created a community of love. And Newman, Newman says this about our missionaries in New Zealand. The missionaries worked hard ground among a fiercely intelligent and cynical people who challenged and questioned them at every step until a rapport and respect was reached. Good stories and bad stories among them. But it wasn't the breakthrough in education or the stand against injustice that won Māori over, but the enduring love of the missionaries, their confidence and belief that all men and women are equal under one God that made the difference. When the walk marries up with the talk, then there's credibility. But I think, I think what's happened over time... See, it's, it, it's, about, it's, it's the love. It's the loving community. And when we, when we are loving community as the church, it's a witness to the world. Without love, it's just talk. Without love, it's just talk. And people have had enough of talk. People have had enough of talk. They've had enough of people trying to sell them stuff. Just got to love people. We've got to ask God to give us His eyes and His heart to see people as He sees them. Get past my selfishness, my judgment, my preconceptions to see people as beautiful and loved by God. And for that, I need His help. So our theme is belonging. This month we're speaking about mission, and I just want to lay the groundwork for that, that it's not just something we do as individuals, but our witness as a body, our witness as a church is salt and light. Our witness as a community of faith is part of our mission to the world. As a church, let's be aware of our ability as a community of faith to be a witness to the love and greatness of God and Jesus Christ, the God who so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't send Jesus into the world to judge the world. He sent Jesus into the world because he loves us and he wanted to save us. And so as we do life together, as we worship together, as we endeavor to love one another as Christ has loved us, we are a witness for Christ in a world that craves him, that doesn't quite realize that he's the answer to all they need. Sometimes we get in the way of it a bit. But actually, he's the one. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, by your Spirit, bind us together as your family here on earth. Help us to walk the talk, Lord. Help us to be genuine and honest. To take on that which is ours to take on and not, not to burden ourselves with that which isn't. Bind us one to the other as brother and sister, Lord. 
Help us to go beyond nice, Lord, to see Christ in others and to love as you've loved. And let our love and presence, our love and presence, be a beacon of light and hope in our world. Not just us here, Lord, meeting as a church, but Lord, as we invite people into our homes, as we mix with people, that they would be able to see us and say as they did when they saw our ancestors of old, Lord. Wow, see how they love each other. See how they love one another. Lord, let it be for your glory. Lord, let it be as your kingdom comes and your will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. Make our lives together something beautiful for you, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you, church.